Twitter shares fly on news that Elon Musk has taken a position. Starbucks suspends share buybacks. We cover the biggest analyst calls of the day. Hertz announces that they will be purchasing even more electric vehicles. And Jamie Dimon releases his annual shareholder letter. This is the Running With The Money briefing. Let's get into it. is up and welcome to another episode of the running with the money briefing powered by pound of the table i'm your host luke Donay, and we have to get right into what in the world the markets are doing dow jones up 63 nasdaq up 213 in the s p 500 up 25 sector by sector group by group we see consumer statisticals communication services and technology leading the way to the upside but shifting into the biggest headlines of the day we have news out of mr elon musk ceo of tesla Purchasing a position in, well, his favorite platform, and I think a lot of people's favorite platform, Twitter. So, Elon Musk has taken a position in Twitter stock, according to the latest SEC filing, the 13G, that was released today. Elon Musk owns 73,486,938 shares of Twitter representing a 9.2% passive stake in the company, making that position per Twitter's closing price on Friday worth $2.89 billion. Now, this comes just under two weeks after Elon Musk actually criticized Twitter on Twitter. He tweeted, quote, given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. He went on to say, quote, what should be done? So, Pretty much right there, he, he called out Twitter, first off, for their lack of free speech, and then he asked what should be done about the platform's lack of free speech. Well, it turns out he decided to buy the stock, and who knows what goes on from here. Many are speculating that he's going to eventually take this to more of an activist type of position, I mean, that he is really going to push for further free speech on the platform, but that is all speculation has yet to be seen. It'll be interesting to see. What happens between Elon Musk, Twitter, and this major position in their stock? Now, shifting into Starbucks, suspending share buybacks. So, as we know, Howard Schultz has returned to Starbucks as the interim CEO after their previous CEO had retired. Now, his first option here, his first decision, you could say, has been to suspend share buybacks and to invest that capital into operations. So, in a letter that he most recently released to workers, he basically said that his first task is to spend time with the employees of Starbucks and that he believes it's essential to reinvest into the company and stop these share buybacks. He goes on to say, quote, this decision will allow us to invest more profit into our people and our stores. The only way to create long-term value for our stakeholders. So he believes the only way to create this long-term value for stakeholders is to really reinvest in the company and really just put a hold on this spending program when it comes to buybacks. Now, it is important. The previous CEO, Kevin Johnson, did put into action this share buyback program worth $20 billion in dividends that would span three years. Um, and that was in October, which now that he's gone, Mr. Schultz coming in saying, look, we're suspending this program for now. 
Now, it is important to pay attention to what Starbucks was doing with that program up until Schultz really came in. In fact, Starbucks ended the year 2021 without repurchasing any shares despite having the program on. So that was very interesting. This all also comes as you see Starbucks struggling when it comes to this union push from baristas. We do know to date we've had nine Starbucks locations vote to unionize, including their flagship store in New York City. And also, according to CNBC, there are more than 180 company-owned locations that have now filed petitions to unionize. So there's a lot going on when it comes to unions and Starbucks. There's a lot going on when it comes to their buyback program. And Mr. Schultz, Howard Schultz, pretty much putting a hold on that buyback program saying, no, we're suspending that. We're reinvesting into the company, our workers, and our people. So that's going to be definitely something to pay attention to. A very disappointing headline, actually, for many investors out of Starbucks. I know a lot of investors, just based on the sediment this morning, were not happy with this. The stock was down. Not a terrible amount, but it was trading down. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of this over the next few months. But shifting into the biggest analyst calls of the day, we had Morgan Stanley reiterating Amazon as overweight. The firm went on to say, quote, While further unionization is a risk, material union movements will take time, years, face challenges, and if they really gain momentum, could lead to a faster shift towards automation. So Morgan Stanley saying that, look, yes, unionization within the Amazon warehouses is a risk or even across the entire Amazon business, but we think it's going to take quite a bit of time if anything truly plays out, and therefore we continue to reiterate Amazon as overweight. UBS upgrading Neo to buy from neutral today. UBS went on to say, quote, UBS Evidence Labs EV Consumer Survey reveals Neo's improving brand recognition provided a basis for new products, strong sales volumes in our view. So UBS believes that the company Neo has what it takes to basically provide their basis for newer products coming that will provide strong sales volumes. So that is going to be something to pay attention to. UBS bullish on Neo upgrading it to buy from neutral. We also had Goldman Sachs reiterating Tesla as a buy of the day. They go on to say, quote, we believe the company executed well amidst ongoing supply chain challenges and factory shutdowns. It's also important to note this comes on the back of over the weekend. Of course, we got those Tesla delivery numbers and they were pretty darn solid. Now, shifting into Evercore ISI, downgrading Hologic to inline from outperform. Evercore went on to say, quote, we are downgrading Hologic. Their ticker symbol is H-O-L-X shares to in line with an $80 price target due to three reasons. One, our last year's UNG on improved top line has largely played out. Two, supply chain and chip shortage situation does not seem to be improving. And three, valuation implies modest upside. So, Evercore ISI basically saying their thesis has played out. They came into in line when it comes to their actual numbers. They have some supply chain challenges. And therefore, we believe that, you know, we're just going to downgrade it to in line from outperform. We don't believe it's a raging buy at the moment. We also have Bank of America reiterating Palo Alto Networks as a buy. The firm went on to say, quote, as cloud software growth continues to accelerate and outpace the legacy parts of the business, we believe stock's valuation should eventually grow to a SaaS-like valuation level. So they believe that Palo Alto's growth is pretty darn solid and that the industry also continues to grow, that they're going to be very successful and eventually grow into a valuation that is much more elevated like a SaaS-like company. And then finally, Bank of America reiterating Spotify 
as a buy. The firm went on to say, quote, we remain bullish on the long-term potential of Spotify, which we think should benefit from an inflection in advertising and several new market launches. So pretty much Bank of America reiterating their bullish thoughts and thesis on Spotify, reiterating that name as a buy. Now, shifting into a headline out of Hertz, the rental car company announcing that they will be purchasing another 65,000 electric vehicles from Polestar, not Tesla, but from Polestar, which is a sub-brand of Volvo, and their parent company is Geely, a Chinese company, but shifting into this order. So these new vehicles are going to be acquired by Hertz over the period of five years, according to CNBC and sources. Also, these Polestar vehicles that Hertz will maintain um, are going to be available in Europe in the spring of 2022 and then in North America and Australia in late 2022. The financial terms of this deal were not disclosed, but we do know that Polestar's Polestar 2 sedan does start at $49,000. So if they were all Polestar 2s at $49,000 and Hertz didn't get a deal, that comes out to a deal worth about $3.18 billion between Hertz and Polestar. So a pretty sizable deal, um, but those are just speculative numbers. Now, it is important to note that not all too long ago, Hertz also announced that they will be purchasing 100,000 Tesla vehicles. Um, and this is all in a bid to electrify their entire fleet, which is roughly 500,000 vehicles. So Hertz attempting to go electric, continuing to make these large EV orders. And then finally, let's dig in to Jamie Dimon's shareholder letter, where he touched on actually quite a darn bit. He touched on the global economy, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and how that will affect the U.S. supply chains in the Federal Reserve. So we're just going to read through some of this and talk about it real quickly. So first off, in his annual shareholder letter, CEO of J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, outlined basically three forces that he believes are going to be key factors when it comes to the future of the global economy. Those three forces are the U.S. economy rebounding from the COVID pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting humanitarian crisis, and then finally, high inflation that will be ushering in a new era of rising rates. Now, what did he have to say about those three factors? He said, quote, they present completely different circumstances than what we've experienced in the past, and their confluence may dramatically increase the risk ahead. While it is possible and hopeful that all of these events will have peaceful resolutions, we should prepare for the potential negative outcomes. So basically he says, look, I'm hopeful that all of those key factors I outlined have positive outcomes in the end, but if they don't, we must be prepared for those high-risk events. Now, he also touched a little deeper on the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. He said, quote, the war in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia at a minimum will slow the global economy and it could easily get worse. He then went into more detail on what really he thought the economic impact would be on the United States due to the Ukraine-Russian conflict. He says, quote, we expect the fallout from the war and resulting sanctions to reduce Russia's GDP by 12.5% by mid-year. It declined worse than the 10% drop after the 1998 default. Our economists currently think that the euro area, highly dependent on Russia for oil and gas, will see GDP growth of roughly 2% in 2022, instead of the elevated 4.5% pace we had expected just six weeks ago. By contrast, they expect the U.S. economy to advance roughly 2.5%, 
versus a previously estimated 3%. But I caution that these estimates are based upon a fairly static view of the war in Ukraine and the sanctions now in place. So, in essence, what he is saying there is that, look, uh, our economists believe that Russia's GDP is going to drop drastically. Also, we don't think Europe's going to do all too well. The growth in the U.S. will be modest, but not nearly as much as we expected. It's basically a very quick and easy summary of what he relayed there from his economist. He doesn't sound all too confident about the entire conflict at all and really how it will entirely affect the global economy and U.S. economy, but that is insofar what he believes. Now, shortly after that, he went on to speak more widely on basically that this is a wake-up call for democracies and the future of democracies. And if you want the full context of this, you can find this letter pretty much anywhere online. All the major sources, CNBC, Bloomberg, all basically published it. So go check it out because there is a lot more than what we're reading, but I'm giving you the highlights. Now, to round out everything, he started to talk about supply chains. And here's his commentary on supply chains. He says, quote, it is also clear that trade and supply chains, where they affect matters of national security, need to be restructured. You simply cannot rely on countries with different strategic interests for critical goods and services. Such reorganization does not need to be a disaster or decoupling. With thoughtful analysis and execution, it should be rational and orderly. This is in everyone's best interest. Furthermore, he says, for any products or materials that are essential for national security, think rare earths, 5G, and semiconductors, the U.S. supply chain must either be domestic or open only to completely friendly allies. We cannot and should not ever be reliant on processes that can and will be used against us, especially when we are most vulnerable. For similar national security reasons, activities including investment activities that help create a national security risk, sharing critical technology with potential adversaries should be restricted. So pretty much there on supply chains, he is saying and stating the obvious that when it comes to, for instance, China and Taiwan and all of these issues, in essence, our supply chains need to be secure and our supply chains only need to be with allies that we know will be friendly, not adversaries. And he is essentially stating that we should not be sharing any critical technology, anything critical to our economy and our advancements with adversarial countries, such as it seems he's hinting at China throughout this. Definitely something to pay attention to. And then finally, I think the most interesting part about this letter was his view on the Federal Reserve. He says, quote, the Federal Reserve and the government did the right thing by taking bold, dramatic actions following the misfortune unleashed by the pandemic. In hindsight, it worked. But also, in hindsight, the medicine, fiscal spending, and QE was probably too much and lasted too long. Furthermore, he says, I do not envy the Fed for what they must do next. The stronger the recovery, the higher the rates that follow. I believe that this could be significantly higher than the markets expect. And the stronger the quantitative tightening, QT, if the Fed gets it just right, we can have years of growth and inflation will eventually start to recede. In any event, this process will cause lots of consternation and very volatile markets. The Fed should not worry about volatile markets unless they affect the actual economy. A strong economy trumps market volatility. One thing the Fed should do, and seems to have done, is to exempt themselves, give themselves ultimate flexibility. 
from the pattern of raising rates by only 25 basis points and doing so on a regular schedule. And while they may announce how they intend to reduce the Fed balance sheet, they should be free to change this plan on any moment's notice in order to deal with the actual events in the economy and the markets. A Fed that reacts strongly to data and events in real time will ultimately create more confidence. In any case, rates will need to go up substantially. The Fed has a hard job to do, so let's all wish them the best. So, he seems to be confident in the Federal Reserve. He is expecting more market volatility. He doesn't think the market is pricing everything in, but he seems to believe there is a pathway to a positive outcome when it comes to the Federal Reserve, kind of slowing inflation, keeping the economy afloat, and not spooking investors. So, it's definitely going to be something to pay attention to going ahead. Jamie Dimon with a very responsible commentary on the Federal Reserve. But that is his letter. Those are the highlights that I wanted to bring to you today. Once again, you can find this on CNBC, Bloomberg, Reuters, all the major sources. They all have big time articles on it, highlighting all of the key parts. So go check those out. But that is the show. Thank you for listening. Before you go, I want you to go give my boys and my fellow team members over at Pound of the Table a listen at Pound of the Table, anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, please go and give me and my team a listen and follow at Running With The Money. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, when it comes to social media, Facebook and Instagram, or simple follow me at Luke Donay on Twitter. Until the next time, easily profit, trade on, and I will see you tomorrow.